thank you, worship team, who just arrived back from Florida themselves. Speaking of Florida trips, they've got, uh, you know, not jet lag, but highway lag, I guess, you know, so we're so, so grateful that they, I'm really grateful that they were here. I told them this morning, I did not have a plan B. If they had stayed at Disney World, I, you know, we, we didn't have a plan B. So uh, anyway, open your Bible to Acts chapter 21. Acts 21, verses 1 through 36. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one provided for you in the back of the pew there in front of you. You'll find this on page 788 or 829 of the pew Bible, depending on which printing of that you have. The title of this morning's message, as I said earlier, is When Wise Spirit-Led People Get It Wrong. Uh, Some of us need to be reminded occasionally of the possibility that we might be wrong. And so let me just tell you, public service announcement, you might be wrong. It's, uh, it's liberating for somebody just to tell you that sometimes. But we're going to get right into the text in Acts 21. And so whether you're following along uh, there in your Bible on your handheld device or up on the screen where the words should be posted, let's look there together now at Acts 21. And I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Beginning in verse one, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. And when he had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Batara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the bench, we prayed, or the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I'm ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. 
They are zealous for the law and they have been told that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what was, has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification will be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the, uh, the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple and, once, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, we do thank you indeed for your word, for its life and truth that we find in it and for your faithfulness that when we read it, you make it alive to us and speak to individual needs of our hearts. It is remarkable how you were able to do so and yet so faithful to do that very thing. And so we ask that you would today, would you speak, O oh Lord, your word, by your spirit, through your servant, and to your people, and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. In chapter 20, Paul was bringing his third missionary journey to an end, and he sailed um, along the coast of Asia Minor and went down just past Ephesus, if you remember that last week, to Miletus. He actually was um, hastening to get to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And so he didn't want to stop in Ephesus and get hung up there. He went just past Ephesus, but called for the Ephesian elders to come to himself. And he had a message for them there, if you remember. And he cautioned them that when he departed, fierce wolves were going to come in among them um, at risk to the flock. And even from among themselves would arise those who would speak twisted things and lead people astray. And so he warned them about that. 
they had a tearful departure and then he made his way on. And as we read um, here, opening up in chapter 21, he left Miletus uh, aboard a ship. They went over to uh, Patara, so number eight on your map. And then he got aboard another ship and went numbers nine, 10, and 11. As so if you look on the map on your bulletin, um, that sort of is what we're reading about today that concludes his third missionary journey. He stayed for a week in Tyre where they were unloading their cargo and then they went on down to Caesarea and it says they spent many days there. We don't know how long, but probably some extended period of time. And, uh, and fellowshipping with uh, the church in both of those places. And then finally, uh, number 11 indicates they traveled by foot up the mountain to Jerusalem where they had this meeting with uh, James and the elders there and this, then this encounter in the temple. But at each of those stops, okay, at the end of number 9, 10, and 11 there, Paul gets advice from other people. Uh, it's mostly unsolicited and yet um, earnest and heartfelt on their part. I mean deeply sincere on their part. They have counsel about decisions that he's facing. And we see that Paul and others in, in making decisions seek to be spirit-led and they seek to be wise. And those are the two characteristics I want to focus on this morning. And so I'm kind of, I'm going to try to approach this a little bit differently today um, in, in terms of even the way we unpack it, but we're going to sort of zoom out uh, a, a bit from this passage so that we can see the surrounding chapters in our peripheral vision, so to speak, um, so that we see something about the spirit-led nature of decision-making here and also how wisdom is applied in decision-making. First, let's look at the fact that these were spirit-led decisions, a spirit-led decision Paul is making, spirit-led counsel that others are giving him about that decision. And so we'll look back first at chapter 19, verse 21. If you'll just page back there, a page or two in your Bible. Chapter 19, Verse 21, Paul was in Ephesus. This was um, at the outset of his third journey. You know, he spent three years in Ephesus. Ephesus is most of his third missionary journey, really. And somewhere toward the end of that time, and yet while he's still in Ephesus, it says in verse 21, now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must go to Rome. Way back there in Ephesus, he's resolved in his spirit. He's going to make this trip to Jerusalem, and then he hopes to go on to Rome. And then fast forward to chapter 20, where we were last week, and in his conversation with the Ephesian elders, we see in verses 22 and 23, he makes references again. He says, and now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the spirit not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. He's constrained by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. He's resolved in his spirit to go to Jerusalem. And then we see what other believers that he encounters have to say about that same trip to Jerusalem. We just read in verse four of chapter 21, that when he was in Tyre, 
for this week while the ship is unloading the cargo. He, he, he spends some time with the believers there. And it says in verse 24, having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days and through the spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And then down in verses 11 and 12 of this same chapter, chapter 21, it says that Agabus, the prophet, came down, took Paul's belt and bound his hand, own hands and feet. And he said this, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns his belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. The we being Luke, the, the author of this book, and the other mission team, the Paul's traveling companions, and the other believers in the church at Caesarea are urging Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Now, the summary that, of that then is a, 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 very, a very rough paraphrase is Paul is saying, I have heard from the Holy Spirit and I must go to Jerusalem. And the other believers are saying, we have heard from the Holy Spirit and you must not go to Jerusalem. You see the, you see the conflict. And there's actually a, a substantial amount of debate about this passage and how this should rightly be understood even uh, somewhat among um, New Testament scholars. Some people say Paul made a mistake by going to Jerusalem that he shouldn't have gone. Even though he had plans to go to Jerusalem, he didn't, he shouldn't have gone then. Even though he had desires to go to Rome, he didn't have to go as a prisoner. He shouldn't have gone. Um, I disagree. I disagree. And I think, frankly, the best reading of the text is that that's not the right way of understanding that. And I'm going to try to unpack that uh, for a moment. But, but, but one of the things uh, we, we want to understand is, you know, in what's going on in, uh, in verse four and then in verses 11, 11 and 12 among these other disciples. See, because Paul has had this conviction, right? He, uh, for a long time, he's had this conviction. He's got to go to Jerusalem. And then he's, he's going to see Rome after that. One of the, uh, one of the indicators or sort of one factor in good decision-making is um, if you have a, a conviction about something like that, a leading towards something that remains over a period of time, even if you try to shake it and you can't shake it, um, that's, that's a good indication you're sort of sniffing down the right trail, so to speak. And so Paul has had that for a long time. The, the, the others uh, counseling him otherwise, uh, let's look at 11 and 12 to kind of try to understand what's, what's going on here because this is a real conflict. That's why I titled the message what I did. When, when wise and spirit-led people get it wrong because somebody's got it wrong here right? You can't go to Jerusalem and not go to Jerusalem at the same time. So in, verse, in verses 11 and 12, what happens there? Well, the prophet says, here's what's going to happen to the man who owns this belt. You're going to be bound 
and turned over to the Gentiles. That's what the prophecy is. And, and the response of the people is to urge Paul not to go to Jerusalem, right? In other words, it, they've, they've correctly uh, understood the threat that awaits him there. They've incorrectly um, applied that to Paul's situation or, or said to Paul how he ought to apply that to his situation, Right, you understand, you understand the conflict there. What, what, but what, what 11, verses 11 and 12 tell us is the prophet said one thing, the people said, Paul, here's what you ought to do about that. Now, if we look back up to verse four, um, again, this is, this is the one where there's lots of um, vigorous debate among people who would sit and debate these kinds of things about how we're to understand uh, verse four of chapter 21, where it says that those believers entire through the spirit we're telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And, and I would agree with those who say the best understanding of that is what happened in verse four is what happened in verse 12. That is that, that the believers are discerning something from the Holy Spirit about what awaits Paul in Jerusalem. Imprisonment, the, the, the threat of death even. And, and so what comes out of their mouth is don't go to Jerusalem. Through the Spirit, don't go to Jerusalem. Um, now, I, I would say this is an example of why we, we, we can have an understanding as we do in our church that God still speaks, right? We believe that God still speaks to people, that all the gifts of the Spirit are still valid, that the gift of prophecy is still valid, that God speaks to his people, through people. And yet not in such a way that it is infallible, right? We don't, we, don't, we don't think of the gift of prophecy yielding words that then we write down in the back of our Bible because those are added to the scriptures now. It's not, it's not equivalent to that. Well, can you say amen to that? Do I know you're tracking with me? We don't understand the New Testament gift of prophecy in that way. And it's why we read um, elsewhere where Paul says, Test prophecies, hold fast to what's good because not all of them are good, right? Isn't that the implication? And, and I think here, what I see in verse four is kind of an illustration of that. There is something that they have discerned rightly from the spirit and yet what they have told Paul out of that um, is, is an incorrect application of it. And I hope I'm making uh, sense on that. Now, one of the reasons that's important to linger on is I think we need to understand that it's okay uh, for us on one hand to value what other believers may have to say to us even by the Holy Spirit. That, that other people may have a word that they think is from the Lord for us or for the body. And yet it's okay to understand that they might be wrong. And those two things are not in conflict. That the, that the Holy Spirit can give a word to somebody and in its filtering through fallen humanity, that what comes out is something imperfect. And hence we test it and hold fast to what is good. 
I think that's an example of what's going on here in uh, verse four and then verses 11 and 12 of chapter 21. That believers have discerned something rightly, they've applied it wrongly. And so Paul, actually, as a result of that, the implication is he's actually strengthened in his resolve to go to Jerusalem. Because every time that is questioned, it's sort of a gut check moment for Paul. I bet he's certain he must go to Jerusalem. It's a spirit-led decision. uh, And I'm gonna skip over a number of things here (laughs) uh, in the interest of our... A picnic that's cooking back here. Um, But I'd say also, uh, it's not only a spirit-led decision that are making here or or in this passage. We we see not only spirit-led decision, but also wise decision-making. That wise decisions and even uh, counsel from wise people about decisions can be arrived at in really, you know, biblically faithful ways, um, in prayerful ways, and then and yet still be imperfect, still be wrong. In verses 21, or sorry, in, in chapter 21, verses 17 through 22, um, I, I'm gonna sort of try to summarize here that when Paul goes up to Jerusalem, he goes into James and the brothers and he said, hey, let me tell you about what happened among the Gentiles. God has done this great work. And James says, and the others, praise the Lord. They glorify the Lord for it. And he says, hey, Paul, listen, um, God's doing something here among the Jews too. So we rejoice with you at what's going on among the Gentiles, but there are many thousands of Jews here in Jerusalem who have believed also. You might remember back in chapter eight, a great persecution arose and all the believers were scattered out of Jerusalem. You remember that? Only the apostles remained. Well, they've migrated back to Jerusalem. There's now a church of thousands in Jerusalem again and they are living peaceably among the Jews. You know, Paul hasn't found any Jews he can live peaceably among for, he made it about three months in Ephesus, right? But I mean, like he, he quickly upsets people everywhere he goes, starting with the Jews. And the believers in Jerusalem are living peaceably in a Jewish city. So James is saying, there are many thousands of Jews here and they've heard tell of you. People are saying that you tell the Jews in all these other parts of the world to forsake Moses, to forsake the law, to forsake this place. Now, what James could have said, let's consider in light of the counsel that Paul got elsewhere, James could have said, Paul, you shouldn't be in Jerusalem. You shouldn't have come here. It's not safe for you to be here. Uh, Let's just wait till nightfall and well after dark, we're gonna sneak you back out of the city, get you back to Caesarea where it's safe and you just lay low for a while. But James didn't say that. Look at verse 23 and 24, because, because James is, is offering to, uh, to Paul here wise counsel. It's not, he doesn't claim this is a word from the Lord or, any, or anything like that, but wise counsel nonetheless. And he says, do what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow 
Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. Now, James is basically saying, then go up to the temple and observe these purification rituals. We don't know, by the way, that the details of the vows or the purification rituals associated with those. There's no uh, specific reference to what's going on there. But he says, go up to the temple, um, observe the purification rituals, then everybody will know the truth. That you're, you're not anti-Jewish, you're not anti-law. Everybody will know what's really up and everything will be okay. That's right, again, a, a loose paraphrase, but that's basically James's advice. Go observe the law in the sight of people and then they'll know the truth and it'll be okay. Well, if you paid attention while we were reading the passage, you found out it was definitely not Okay. And he did that. And the Jews from Asia, it says, beginning down in, in verse 27 and following, the Jews from Asia recognized him and said, hey, there's that guy we've been talking about who's, you know, preaches against Moses and all this kind of stuff. They stir up a crowd. They assume the worst. They, they, they assume he's brought Gentiles into the temple. He hasn't. He brought Jews into the temple, but he, they saw him with the Gentile earlier and just made assumptions about him based on uh, what they thought they knew before. They stir up the, the mob with those accusations. They drag him out in order to kill him. And he's actually taken uh, and arrested by the Roman authorities. So he's actually rescued by being put in prison. The pr- prison is actually his salvation, if you will, in this moment. But, but James, James was wrong about part of this. You, you're tracking with me there? I mean, like, he, Paul was supposed to go up to the temple. He was in, in God's design on things. In other words, Paul is supposed to end up arrested. He's going to appeal to Rome. He's going to go to Rome. God's got a plan going on here all along. But in terms of James' uh, thoughts about how this will unfold and what his advice is accordingly, he just misses it. He just misses it. The leader of the church, a wise man, a godly man. He assumed people would act rationally. Uh, that just wasn't true. And, 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 you know, James has a good read on what the, what the sort of the temperature is, if you will, the, the climate in Jerusalem among the Jews there. Because they're living peaceably among them. Um, the X factor here is these, uh, the Jews from Asia and these other Gentile places and just how upset they are at Paul. He applies wisdom to the situation and still misses the mark. Now, just a quick uh, sort of word or two of application as we uh, close, close up here. But as, as believers, when we face important decisions, you know, we want, to, we want to decide in a way that's pleasing to the Lord, right? We, we want to do what's good and right and true. Uh, and there are some, some situations where, uh, you know, that decision matters to God, 
in a sense. In other words, God has something to say about, you know, the relationship we're about to get into or the business we're going to open or something like that. You know, if you're down to, uh, you, you've decided to buy a car and it's a good stewardship decision for you and all that kind of thing and all everything else is equal about it and you're trying to decide whether to get the white car or the silver car, God probably doesn't care most of the time about whether you get white or silver. Um, but there are some things that do matter to him. We try to make decisions accordingly, right? So we ask questions, we apply wisdom to our decision-making. We ask questions like, what principles has God revealed in his word about this subject? About relationships, about stewardship, about um, the, the way that I use my time, about family as a priority for me and so forth. What do I know that does matter to God? What are the potential consequences of this decision, good or bad? And how will those impact other people? Those are the kinds of questions we ask. And we may seek out wise counsel from other people who can reflect on those questions with us or can raise other questions for us to help us think through that. And, and that, by the way, is, is more often than not a really good discipline to have that you seek counsel from other people. As the proverb says, there's safety and a multitude of counselors. Paul's, uh, Paul's decision to go to Jerusalem in spite of all the urging not to is, should be for us an exception rather than a rule. I mean, more often than not, if you've got a, 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 a big body of believers unified in their counsel toward you to do one thing that goes against your own thoughts about that, very often it is wise to listen to them. That's a, that's a good thing to do. Uh, unless, like Paul, you are so firmly convinced that God has directed you where you're supposed to go that you can't be swayed otherwise. But we try to apply wisdom. We try to, we try to discern what's God's... Uh, how is God leading in this matter? So in our prayer time, in our communion with him... We, we might just be asking, Lord, how, how would you direct me here? What do you have to say to me? Is there anything you want to speak into the situation? I've often said, um, I describe my, my prayers about, you know, decisions, many, many kind of big decisions. Uh, I pray over decisions, uh, not so much about them, in the sense that I know there are uh, wisdom factors that are going to go into that decision as well. Like I can think through pros and cons, consequences, good and bad, and all these different things. But I'm, I'm praying over that and saying, Lord, I'm given, I'm given opportunity for you to speak through another person, speak just by, through your word, by a quiet voice of your spirit to guide the process of making this decision or whatever. But we're inviting the Lord, in other words, that by his spirit to lead in that, in that decision. That's, that is good, normal practice for, for believers to want to do, to, to be both wise and to be spirit-led. Those are in harmony with each other, not in opposition to one another. And yet, even when we do, we may get it wrong. We may get it wrong. And what do we do then? We do uh, what they did in verse 14, and we'll cl close on this thought. After they had urged him not to go to Jerusalem, he said, I'm ready not only to be in prison, but to die 
for the name of the Lord Jesus. And they said in verse 14, since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. You'll notice, of course, that letting the will of the Lord be done didn't mean doing nothing, right? It, it didn't mean just being completely passive about it. They, they didn't take the position, we're just gonna let go and let God hear. They, they urged him, they tried to persuade him not to go to Jerusalem. They reasoned and tried to reason with him. But then they said, let the, let the will of the Lord be done. And there, listen, beloved, because I, I know there are some sitting here right now facing major decisions, or at least it's major to you. And, and you, have, you have thought, you've thought at it from every direction. Prayed through it, you've talked yourself in circles about it until you're just weary and still don't know what to do and afraid of getting it wrong. And, and, and what you need to know is that even if you get it wrong, there is rest to be found in the Lord and his sovereignty over the situation. We can rest and just say in our own hearts, let the will of the Lord be done. And we need to understand as spirit-filled people who prize being led by the spirit, who affirm receiving words from the spirit even through other people, um, that those, those two can still be wrong and that's okay and God is big enough to govern over even uh, our mistakes even our misunderstandings and our missteps. And, you know, if that weren't true, I probably wouldn't be here right now. I'd probably be under a bed somewhere afraid to come out if, if the Lord wasn't big enough to oversee my failures and foibles and yours too. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we do thank you um, for your faithfulness. We thank you, Lord, for uh, this word of encouragement to us, Lord, that you are governing over our affairs, even through our decision-making processes, even through our conversations with other people, through the circumstances that, that guide and direct us or um, hinder us in, in, in all kinds of other ways. Lord, you are governing over all of that to accomplish your will. Would you just captivate our hearts to desire your will and your glory above all things. And Lord, we know then that even when we see imperfectly how to walk that out, you are willing and able and faithful to superintend and to sovereignly guide it anyway. Lord, would you do so in the lives of people who need that assurance and need your direction. In Jesus' name, amen.